You are listening to Learn Out Loud's Biography Podcast. With this series, we will explore the lives of notable people throughout history, whether it be world leaders, political activists, spiritual luminaries, great artists, or everyday people. This podcast will be a showcase for their story. For a complete listing of Learn Out Loud's podcasts, please visit us at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. Alexander the Great by Plutarch From Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans Edited by John Stuart White It must be borne in mind that my design has been not to write histories, but lives, and the most glorious exploits do not always furnish us with the clearest discoveries of virtue or vice in men. Sometimes, a matter of less moment, an expression or a jest, informs us better of their characters and inclinations than the most famous sieges, the greatest armaments, or the bloodiest battles whatsoever. Therefore, as portrait painters are more exact in the lines and features of the face in which the character is seen than in the other parts of the body, so I must be allowed to give my more particular attention to the marks and indications of the souls of men in my portrayal of their lives. It is agreed on by all hands that, on the father's side, Alexander descended from Hercules by Carinus, and from Eucus by Neoptolemus on the mother's side. His father Philip, being in Samothrace when he was quite young, fell in love there with Olympias, in company with whom he was initiated in the religious ceremonies of the country, and her father and mother being both dead soon after, with the consent of her brother Arimbus, he married her. Alexander was born on the sixth of Hecatombion, the same day that the temple of Diana at Ephesus was burnt. The statues that gave the best representation of Alexander's person were those of Lysippus, those peculiarities which many of his successors afterwards used to effect to imitate. The inclination of his head a little on one side towards his left shoulder, and his melting eye, having been expressed by this artist with great exactness. But Apelles, who drew him with thunderbolts in his hand, made his complexion browner and darker than it was naturally, for he was fair and of a light color, passing into ruddiness in his face and upon his breast. His temperance, as to all pleasures, was apparent in him in his very childhood, as he was with much difficulty incited to them, and always used them with great moderation, though in other things he was extremely eager and vehement. And in his love of glory and the pursuit of it, he showed a solidity of high spirit and magnanimity far above his age. For he neither sought nor valued it upon every occasion, as his father Philip did, who affected to show his eloquence almost to a degree of pedantry, and took care to have the victories of his racing chariots at the Olympic Games engraved on his coin. But when he was asked by some about him whether he would run a race in the Olympic Games, as he was very swift-footed, he answered that he would if he might have kings to run with him. While he was yet very young, he entertained the ambassadors from the king of Persia in the absence of his father, and entering much into conversation with them, gained so much upon them by his affability and the questions he asked them, which were far from being childish or trifling, that they were struck with admiration of him, and looked upon the ability so much famed of Philip to be nothing in comparison with the forwardness and high purpose that appeared thus early in his son. Whenever he heard that Philip had taken any town of importance or won any signal victory, instead of rejoicing at it altogether, he would tell his companions that his father would anticipate everything, 
and leave him and them no opportunities of performing great and illustrious actions. For being more bent upon action and glory than upon either pleasure or riches, he esteemed all that he should receive from his father as a diminution of his own future achievements, and would have chosen rather to succeed to a kingdom involved in troubles and wars, which would have afforded him frequent exercise of his courage, than to one already flourishing and settled, where his inheritance would be an inactive life and the mere enjoyment of wealth and luxury. The care of his education, as it might be presumed, was committed to a great many attendants, preceptors, and teachers, over the whole of whom Leonidas, a near kinsman of Olympias, a man of austere temper, presided, who did not indeed himself decline the name of what in reality is a noble and honorable office, but in general his dignity and his near relationship obtained for him from other people the title of Alexander's foster-father and governor. But he who took upon him the actual place and style of his pedagogue was Lysimachus the Acarnanian. Philonicus the Thessalian brought the horse Bucephalus to Philip, offering to sell him for thirteen talents. But when they went into the field to try him, they found him so very vicious and unmanageable that he reared up when they endeavored to mount him, and would not so much as endure the voice of any of Philip's attendants. Upon which, as they were leading him away as wholly useless and untractable, Alexander, who stood by, said, What a magnificent horse they lose, for want of address and boldness to manage him. Philip, at first, took no notice of what he said, but when he heard him repeat the same thing several times, and perceived that he was much vexed to see the horse sent away, he said to him, Do you reproach those who are older than yourself, as if you knew more, and were better able to manage him than they? I could manage this horse, replied he, better than others do. And if you fail, said Philip, what will you forfeit for your rashness? I will pay, answered Alexander, the whole price of the horse. At this the whole company fell to laughing, and as soon as the wager was settled amongst them, he ran immediately to the horse, and taking hold of the bridle, turned him directly towards the sun, having, it seems, observed that he was disturbed at and afraid of the motion of his own shadow. Then, letting him go forward a little, still keeping the reins in his hand, and stroking him gently when he found him beginning to grow eager and fiery, he let fall his upper garment softly, and with one nimble leap securely mounted him, and when he was seated, little by little drew in the bridle, and curbed him without either striking or spurring him. Presently, when he found him free from all rebelliousness, and only impatient for the course, he let him go at full speed. Philip and his friends looked on at first in silence and anxiety for the result, till seeing him turn at the end of his career and come back rejoicing and triumphing for what he'd performed, they all burst out into acclamations of applause. And his father, shedding tears, it is said, for joy, kissed him as he came down from his horse, and in his transport said, O oh, my son, seek out a kingdom worthy of thyself, for Macedonia is too little for thee. After this, considering him of a temper easy to be led to his duty by reason, but by no means to be compelled, he always endeavored to persuade rather than to command or force him to anything. And now, looking upon the instruction and tuition of his youth to be of greater difficulty and importance than to be wholly trusted to the ordinary masters in music and poetry, and to require, as Sophocles says, the bridle and the rudder too, he sent for Aristotle, the most learned and most celebrated philosopher of his time, and rewarded him with a munificence proportionable to and becoming the care he took to instruct his son. For he repeopled his native city Stagira, 
which he had caused to be demolished a little before, and restored all the citizens who were in exile or slavery to their habitations. As a place for the pursuit of their studies and exercises, he assigned the Temple of the Nymphs near Misa, where, to this very day, they show you Aristotle's stone seats and the shady walks which he was wont to frequent. It would appear that Alexander received from him not only his doctrines of morals and of politics, but also something of those more abstruse and profound theories which these philosophers, by the very names they gave them, professed to reserve for oral communication to the initiated and did not allow many to become acquainted with. For when he was in Asia, and heard Aristotle had published some treatises of that kind, he wrote to him, using very plain language to him on behalf of philosophy, the following letter. Alexander to Aristotle greeting. You have not done well to publish your books of oral doctrine. For my part, I assure you, I'd rather excel others in the knowledge of what is excellent than in the extent of my power and dominion. Farewell. And Aristotle, soothing this passion for preeminence, speaks in his excuse for himself of these doctrines, as in fact both published and not published. To tell the truth, his books on metaphysics are written in a style which makes them useless for ordinary teaching, and instructive only in the way of memoranda for those who have been already conversant with that sort of learning. Doubtless, also, it was to Aristotle that he owed the inclination he had not to the theory only, but to the practice of the art of medicine. For when any of his friends were sick, he would often prescribe for them in their course of diet and medicines proper to their disease, as we may find in his epistles. He was, naturally, a great lover of all kinds of learning and reading, and Onesicritus informs us that he constantly laid Homer's Iliads, according to the copy corrected by Aristotle, called the casket copy, with his dagger under his pillow, declaring that he esteemed it a perfect portable treasure of all military virtue and knowledge. When he was in Upper Asia, being destitute of other books, he ordered Harpalus to send him some, who furnished him with Philistus's history, a great many of the plays of Euripides, Sophocles, and Aeschylus, and some dithyrambic odes composed by Telestes and Philoxenus. While Philip went on his expedition against the Byzantines, he left Alexander, then sixteen years old, his lieutenant in Macedonia, committing the charge of his seal to him, who, not to sit idle, reduced the rebellious Maidae, and having taken their chief town by storm, drove out the barbarous inhabitants, and planting a colony of several nations in their room, called the place after his own name, Alexandropolis. At the battle of Chaeronea, which his father fought against the Greeks, he is said to have been the first man that charged the Thebans' sacred band. And even in my remembrance there stood an old oak tree, which people called Alexander's Oak, because his tent was pitched under it. And not far off are to be seen the graves of the Macedonians who fell in that battle. This early bravery made Philip so fond of him that nothing pleased him more than to hear his subjects call himself their general, and Alexander their king. But later on, through an unfortunate marriage of Philip with Cleopatra, the niece of Attalus, an estrangement grew between them. And not long after the brother of Alexander, Posanius, having had an insult done to him at the instance of Attalus and Cleopatra, when he found he could get no reparation for his disgrace at Philip's hands, watched his opportunity and murdered him. Alexander was but twenty years old when his father was murdered, and succeeded to a kingdom beset on all sides with great dangers and rancorous enemies. Hearing the Thebans were in revolt, and the Athenians in correspondence with them, he immediately marched through the pass of Thermopylae, 
saying that to Demosthenes, who had called him a child while he was in Illyria, and a youth when he was in Thessaly, that he would appear a man before the walls of Athens. When he came to Thebes, he only demanded of them Phoenix and Prothites, the authors of the rebellion, and proclaimed a general pardon to those who would come over to him. But when the Thebans merely retorted by demanding Philotas and Antipater to be delivered into their hands, he applied himself to make them feel the last extremities of war. The Thebans defended themselves with a zeal and courage beyond their strength, being much outnumbered by their enemies. But when the Macedonian garrison sallied out upon them from the citadel, they were so hemmed in on all sides that the greater part of them fell in the battle. The city itself, being taken by storm, was sacked and razed, Alexander's hope being that so severe an example might terrify the rest of Greece into obedience. So that, except the priests and a few who had heretofore been the friends and connections of the Macedonians, the family of the poet Pindar, and those who are known to have opposed the public vote for the war, all the rest, to the number of thirty thousand, were publicly sold for slaves. And it is computed that upwards of six thousand were put to the sword. Among the other calamities that befell the city, it happened that some Thracian soldiers, having broken into the house of a matron of high character and repute named Timoclea, their captain, to satisfy his avarice, asked her if she knew of any money concealed to which she readily answered that she did, and bade him follow her into a garden, where she showed him a well, into which, she told him, upon the taking of the city she had thrown what she had of most value. The greedy Thracian, presently stooping down to view the place where he thought the treasure lay, she came behind him and pushed him into the well, and then flung great stones in upon him till she had killed him. After which, when the soldiers led her away bound to Alexander, her very mien and gait showed her to be a woman of dignity and high mind, not betraying the least sign of fear or astonishment. And when the king asked her who she was, she said, I am the sister of Theogenes, who fought at the battle of Chaeronea with your father, Philip, and fell there in command for the liberty of Greece. Alexander was so surprised both at what she had done and what she had said, that he could not choose but give her and her children their freedom to go whither they pleased. After this, he received the Athenians into favor. Whether it were like the lion that his passion was now satisfied, or that after an example of extreme cruelty he had a mind to appear merciful, it happened well for the Athenians. Certain it is, too, that in after time he often repented of his severity to the Thebans, and his remorse had such influence on his temper as to make him ever after less rigorous to all others.'